Okay, while the uh, buckets are going round, if you do have a Bible with you, uh, would you like to be turning to the book of Daniel, chapter 7? Oh, yes. We're taking a sidestep from Mark's gospel this week, for one week only, um, when I preach anyway. And uh, I'd like us to look at, at Daniel. We actually looked, well, touched on a certain part of Daniel chapter 7 just very briefly uh, last week. wanted to look there a little bit more. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, don't worry. The references that we look at, the Bible scriptures that we look at, will come up on the screen uh, on the stage. Uh, before we get into Daniel chapter 7, just to suppose a bit of background about, uh, about the man himself. Uh, Daniel lived in... Uh, Cool, I've got going even before the buckets are finished. Anyway, um, Daniel lived in turbulent times. Uh, as a young man uh, in Jerusalem, he experienced the Babylonian armies coming and besieging that city, ransacking it, and forcibly taking him and many others like him uh, from his homeland off to Babylon. Um, we see that also Daniel is clever. Uh, it's recognized when he gets to Babylon that he, as well as his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they're recognized as having the ability to serve in the king's palace. So they enter into, I don't suppose they have much choice about the matter, but anyway, they enter into a three-year training program to equip them and train them in the, um, in the culture and the, uh, the literature of the Babylonians so that they are then ready in those three years in three years' time, to enter the king's service. Uh, However, more importantly, the fact that Daniel is clever, uh, Daniel is godly. And what shines through the whole book um, is his character. He is a biblical hero of which no fault is recorded in Scripture. It doesn't mean that he was uh, perfect and without any uh, sin. It just means that his character is shining through. Um, we, we see all the way through, really, that um, he is determined to serve God in the midst of an, uh, of an ungodly kingdom that he's living in. So if you are looking forward one day to going to university and maybe entering into a three-year uh, program of training, or if you're at university right now, you would be amazingly well served by looking at Daniel, looking what he is like, looking at his faith, seeing how he lives away from home, seeing how he lives and works in a society which didn't honor God, how he stands out as a man um, of faith, of convictions, so that he doesn't just drift with the flow of Babylonian culture. Uh, He is determined not to compromise on certain things. Again, it shines through right at the outset of the book. We're not going to look at the earlier chapters, um, but you can Get so much rich encouragement there. People would have known there was something different about him. Um, uh, Other kings would recognize he had exceptional qualities about him. Others, as a result of those qualities, would get jealous and try to harm him. But one thing shines through. He's he's not one who gives in to compromise, but neither is he just hiding away in a Jewish ghetto, as it were. Um, He's actually engaging with the world. He's engaging with a society that he's a part of. He, uh, he, he goes through this three-year training program. I guess even if he didn't have a choice, he could have acted dumb and maybe got kicked off the course. Uh, but he engages and he serves um, the different kings um, 
through the course of his career, um, if you like, uh, bringing influence, bringing godliness, um, bringing a giftedness as well. So he's clever, he lives in turbulent times, he's godly, he's also gifted, gifted by God uh, prophetically. So we see that he's able to interpret other people's dreams. Uh, that happens a few times in the, uh, in the early chapters. Uh, the second part of Daniel, of the book of Daniel, uh, is dedicated to the dreams or the visions that he himself has had and how God brings an interpretation to those. And not all prophecy, not all dreams have a predictive quality. This is going to happen in the future. Actually, often prophecy uh, is about encouraging. Well, it's always about encouraging, about building up. Um, it doesn't always have a predictive future quality to it, but this time it does. And um, we see Daniel's, uh, one of Daniel's dreams here in chapter 7. We're going to, uh, to read through that now, and, uh, and there'll be just a few things I want to, to draw from it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream... And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and a heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened." And I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men in every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. 
So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which is different from all the others. And most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and had uh, eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, the horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. The time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. It's vivid stuff, isn't it? Um, It's a while ago now that we uh, looked through uh, the book of Revelation together uh, with similar uh, language visions that are rich in symbolism. Here we have beasts and a horn which talks. We have a vision that's on on a grand scale so that this one dream takes us from Daniel's day and Daniel's time, and it takes us right through uh, to God bringing in his kingdom and establishing his king, um, and that kingdom being established in, in the fullness. Um, it's, it's massive, it's grand, it's epic, and uh, it, in the time that remains, um, there's only really opportunity to draw out a few things. But um, the reason for doing that, partly when we were looking at, at, at Mark, uh, Mark's gospel last week, Um, we touched on uh, this passage here which speaks of the Son of Man, Jesus often describing himself as the Son of Man. And so we just referenced it here. Um, So maybe it just warrants looking at in a bit more more time. Uh, But also, um, Daniel was living in turbulent times. Uh, This dream reflects turbulent history. And we live in turbulent times as well. Uh, So this message uh, has a PG rating. Um, I'm not going to refer in any detail to events of last weekend um, and Paris, but it's obviously going to be in our minds. Um, So actually, I want to spend some time looking at this uh, chapter of the Bible, um, hopefully, to to bring some help and encouragement. Now, there are three things uh, that I want us to touch on. One is to look at Daniel, and Daniel is disturbed, which is obvious. Um, He has a vision that is deeply troubling. Now, we've all had dreams 
Which are the ones which really stick with you? It tends to be the ones which are grim and unpleasant. And you can kind of wake up in the morning and if you have had a dream, like, what was that about? I can't quite remember. Oh, that was nice, but then it's gone and we kind of crack on with the day. Uh, Sometimes it's it's the unpleasant dreams that grab our attention. And Daniel says in verse 15 that he was troubled in spirit. Um, the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And even when the dream is explained, he's still, uh, at the end of the chapter, in verse 28, he's, he's still deeply troubled um, by his uh, thoughts. Well, what did he see? He saw four beasts, each different from the other, each representing a different kingdom. It's widely understood that um, the, the, the first beast, which is a kind of lion-eagle hybrid, uh, represents Babylon, the kingdom that he was in. Um, it's interesting that it's, uh, it's a menacing beast. At the same time, there's some transformation that takes place because uh, whilst it had some... Um, some wings, those wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given it. And if you look at the story of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he was a ruthless king, bloodthirsty um, despot, but God went to work on him and he was humbled Then he was lifted up and given a heart. And we, we might just comment a bit more on that later on. So Daniel's seen something already of that kingdom he'll see something of the kingdom that follows it the bear um, which is thought to be the the kingdom of Medo-Persia which is again is a a blend of two kingdoms it's thought that the the Persian contingent was slightly stronger so this image of the bear is is kind of lifted up on one side one side has a bit more uh, dominance or supremacy than the other Um, the uh, the third beast is uh, uh, a leopard incredibly fast and also, doesn't only have two wings, has four wings. And this represents the Greek Empire, which had an incredibly swift um, means of overthrowing other nations and kingdoms. Um, and then we get to the fourth beast, the most frightening. And this is the one that grabs his attention. Now, this kingdom represents, this beast represents the Roman Empire. Um, so... Uh, which emerges before and exists after uh, days of Jesus living and walking on the earth. This is the beast that really grabs his attention. So even when he's had the interpretation given to him, like the, the executive summary in verses 17 and 18, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. Uh, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. There is the, 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 in snapshot what this dream is all about. Nevertheless, he comes back and he wants to ask more. He wants to understand more. And particularly, he wants to understand more about the fourth beast. You'll, you'll notice that whilst they're all different, the first three beasts all resemble an animal or animals of sort. They're, they're different, but they're similar in that regard. So if it's not a lion, it's a beast. If it's not a, a bear, if it's not a bear, then um, it's a leopard. The fourth beast is referred it is described with no reference at all to an animal. It's almost like it comes across like a, a beastly machine um, with 
iron teeth. And more time is spent describing the effect that it had. Terrifying, frightening, very powerful. Uh, It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. So let's be clear, this is talking about the Roman Empire that would emerge and would be uh, distinct from those other kingdoms that had followed it. But if we're looking for a reason as to why Daniel was disturbed, we can see here that he's disturbed by seeing something that's unprecedented. He's seen and had experience firsthand of what the Babylonian Empire is like. It won't be long before he sees the, uh, the empire of the Medes and the Persians um, develop momentum. Um, hundreds of years to come, um, the Greek Empire will come. And whilst they're all horrific and they're all uh, challenging and they're all grimly unpleasant, perhaps it's fair to say they're of a similar ilk. But Rome comes along and it's completely, completely different. He was obviously seeing this hundreds of years ahead of time, but anticipating this fourth beast. We can be disturbed when we see or experience or anticipate things that are unprecedented. So uh, what would be completely alien or foreign concept to a previous generation becomes a grim reality to the next generation. So Daniel was living in turbulent times, and so are we, hence considering um, what happened in Paris, and as we gathered together uh, to pray on Friday evening, we, a bit of news had filtered through um, from a church we've got a, a connection with called The Way, The Truth, and The Life, just so that we can stand with them and pray. We too live in challenging, turbulent times. How do we respond? Well, Daniel's response is to be troubled in spirit, is to be uh, deeply disturbed. You see, he has, he's gifted prophetically. He has the sensitivity given to him by God to pick up what God is saying through dreams and visions. That sensitivity also means he's left reeling with what he's seen. Now, does that mean that God was just trying to scare him? That God was trying to intimidate him. That God's purpose was, I I want to frighten, I want to disturb you. Well, well, no, clearly not. Um, But it's also worth saying, this is not a personal fault of Daniel. It's perhaps in his temperament and by God's gifting how he's wired. He is sensitive to that which he has seen. And perhaps that's the means by which God would say, Look, I, I want you to feel the significance of this. I want you to experience something of the weight of this because you're part of my kingdom. You're part of a different kingdom. And I want you to pray. And I want you to seek me. And I want you to, to turn to me. Perhaps there was a danger where in seeing this vision, he would just focus on the beasts or just focus on the fourth beast. But it's important that he, he and we together uh, don't do that. So Daniel is disturbed, but uh, in this vision, he's not just shown beasts. He's shown a God who is good, a God who is righteous, a God who is just, a God who is on the throne, a God who is seated above all things. And, and often we see in Scripture different people 
receiving a vision of God seated on his throne. But it tends to come at a time of turbulence, a time of challenge. So for Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Well, that was a king who had lived for God and honored him in many ways, but had reached out and kind of in a presumptuous way had, had, had gone into the temple and offered uh, sacrifices himself, though he wasn't um, of the priesthood, he wasn't a Levite, and he gets leprosy. Uh, and his last years are spent uh, leprous, kind of wasting away. Uh, and perhaps that's a picture of what's happening in the nation of the time. So in that day, what does Isaiah see? He sees the Lord seated on a, on a throne. Um, and the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he's, he's uh, seen and known many people martyred for their faith. And he's in a prison cell on the island of Patmos. And part of his uh, letter to Revelation, uh, in, in Revelation is directed to churches that are experiencing turbulent times. And what happens to him? After this, I looked and a, and a, wind, a door in, in heaven was opened and there was a throne and someone sitting on it. So this, this vision comes at a time of turbulence when we could be drawn to kind of focus and just and only see things that are disturbing and frightening. And God says, I know that's going on. So what's really important is that you look up. What's really important is that you see who's really in control. And so we've, we've seen these beasts, but we look at those beasts and we see that they are temporary. They have a start point. Um, intriguingly, that's represented by the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea and these different beasts emerging. But we also see that they have an end point. So uh, we see that uh, the first three beasts are stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. Uh, and we see that the, the fourth beast um, was slain in its body destroyed. So they have a start and an end point, but we're invited to see the God who is eternal. Is that song we've sometimes sung, which uh, uses this title. It's quite an unusual title uh, for, for God, uh, Ancient of Days, and it sounds a bit twee. Um, a literal, slightly prosaic translation might be the old one, the one who's seen it all, the one who's been there since the dawn of time. These beasts come and then they go. They're, they have their moment. And maybe that moment lasts, in the case of some of these kingdoms, for 200 years. But then their time is up. Um, that's what's soon to happen with the Babylonian Empire. Um, but it happens to each and every one of them. But God is the eternal one. We see these beasts as well are actually subject to authority. With the first beast... Someone else is in control. Someone else tears off the wings. Someone else lifts, them to, lifts it to its feet and gives it a heart. And uh, someone else is in control. Someone else with the second beast is issuing an instruction. Uh, the second beast was told, get up and eat your uh, fill of flesh. Um, the third beast was given authority to rule. So the authority didn't even rest with them. It was given and it would be taken away. Its days would be numbered. And as we just said in verse, uh, later on in verse 12, uh, they're all one way or another stripped of their authority. And then we see God, the ancient of days, not subject to another, not subject to another's authority, 
And so we get in verse 9, after this chaotic and disturbing uh, opening sequence in the dream, it says, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And it's the, it's the scene of a, of a heavenly courtroom convening. And the most holy judge has just taken his seat, and he's attended by thousands and thousands of, um, of angelic beings. And, uh, and he sits down, not because there's some indifference in heaven, but the time has come to bring judgment, to bring God's verdict, to bring God's sentence and God's solution. Uh, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar himself would learn. As well as God being described as the Ancient of Days in this chapter, he's also referred to as the Most High. And this is how King Nebuchadnezzar himself would come to uh, recognize him. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34 um, after a time when he has been humbled and then uh, restored, uh, he says there, at the end of this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, isn't that amazing? He's writing part of the Bible. Anyway, he ra- raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is, eternal, is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples on the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's what he learned. It's kind of what he learned the hard way. God humbled him, but God restored him. And he recognized there is one who is the, the most high, who is seated and is above absolutely um, all things. We've seen as well that the, the beasts are indiscriminate and wild, devouring uh, victims, causing oppression. But we see the God who is righteous and just. He is the judge. The court was seated. The books were opened. The, the evidence will be seen in its fullest detail. And the heavenly court was seated. Notice that the judgment is fair and matches the activities of each beast. The first three are allowed to live for a while, but they're stripped of their authority. The fourth beast, which operates in a more boastful and horrific and violent way, is dealt with um, and judged accordingly. God is bringing his justice to bear. Now, what all of this does is not just lead us to be a people of prayer, but also a people of peace. The fact that God is on the throne, the fact that he's sovereign and control, the fact that he's a righteous judge who will pronounce sentence and bring about his judgment, ultimately, over all history, uh, means that God's people are to rest in peace, rather than to exercise desire for revenge. That applies personally, uh, but it applies corporately as well. It doesn't mean governments have uh, no responsibility to uphold and maintain justice. It doesn't mean it's appropriate to just to turn a blind eye um, to evil. But because God is in charge, we are not in the business of fearfully taking revenge 
um, in the book of Romans and chapter 12, verse 19. Paul says exactly that. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, this is where the gospel leads us to. It leads us to prayer. But it leads us to peace. In all that might disturb us, There's still a God who's seated on the throne, and we trust in him. Briefly, just coming into a close, the third thing I'd like us to see, um, briefly in Daniel chapter 7, is the character of this kingdom. We've seen Daniel and his response to the beasts. We've seen the Lord, who is the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne. But we also see something of the kingdom he's establishing, God is not just pronouncing judgment and dealing with evil kingdoms. He's setting up his own. And if we take a step back from the question, if you like, why does God allow suffering on the earth? Or what is God actually doing about it? This is what he's doing about it. He's establishing his kingdom. Now, with the, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So maybe, actually, what we're just working through is God's timing. But it's important in the here and now and in everyday life that we are clear on the big picture. So we have this chapter giving us a massive sweep through hundreds and thousands of years, which even as now stretches into the future and right back to Daniel's day, around 600 years before Jesus was born on the earth. It's a massive, big, sweet picture, but we need to see the character of the kingdom. And we'll get back to Mark's gospel and we'll begin seeing it there and looking at it there and unpacking it there as well. But what happens in turbulent times is tribalism... Uh, can reign. There's a search for security, and so fearful humanity just we want to identify ourselves with a, a, a narrowly defined group who are like us and very much the same, and, and we'll find security in that tribe and be fearful and keep at arm's length all other tribes that might be um, out there. But when God is establishing His kingdom it's not it's not like that so uh we've seen in in verse 14 when it's speaking of the son of man picturing uh, jesus he was given authority glory and sovereign power and then note all peoples nations and men of every language worshipped him so there'll be babylonian believers glorifying him there'll be medes and persians glorifying him Uh, there'll be greeks glorifying him there'll be romans glorifying him there'll be british glorifying him there'll be indian there'll um there'll be syrian there'll be turkish there'll be men and women of all peoples all nations brought into his kingdom this is what god is doing and it is different And that's our call too, to be part of this 
kingdom and to find security in what God is doing. It's so easy in times of turbulence to think, oh, I'm feeling shaken. And actually some of that might not be a bad thing. If it shakes us or helps us to realize, hang on a minute, I've been putting my security in the fact I've got quite a nice house. I've got, I'm, being, I'm putting my security in the fact that life for a long time has not really had much turbulence about it at all. And we've enjoyed hundreds and hundreds of years of democracy. And here are the things I'm kind of putting my identity in. I'm British, basically. And I happen to be a Christian. And sometimes when, when we see things we'd rather not see, when we hear of things we'd rather not hear about, when we're in the midst of turbulent times, it's actually a wake-up call to think, hang on a minute, no. I'm a Christian, and I happen to be British. And it's that way, that way round. We can live with a sense of, I'm secure because I know what the future holds. I know the plan that we've got as a family or as a church or as a nation. I know where things are heading. I know, well, in about five years, this is where we're planning to be, and this is what, we, this is what life will look like, and, and then we'll head you know, 20 years. You know, that's, that's what we're reckoning will happen. The fact of the matter is, we don't know. And we can live with a false sense of security if we put it in, our, in aspects of worldly identity. But hang on, we're called to be a part of something different, a part of God's kingdom, a kingdom that is eternal. So these other kingdoms that are even in the ascendancy for hundreds of years actually have their days numbered. We are part of something that is eternal. Verse 27, the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the most high. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the rulers will worship and obey him. Uh, it's, it's distinct, it's, it's open to all, as, a, as we've seen, all peoples, all nations, men of every language worshipped him. So we want to be a people who find our security in God when life is uncertain, when things that we put our hope in can be shaken, and we think, well, I was, I was putting my faith in uh, the police. I've put my faith in the fact um, that we, we have fairly decent intelligence and security services. Well, praise God for them and let's pray for them in this nation and other nations of the world. But actually, our faith is in God. And faith is that which is being sure of what we hope for. So we find in Scripture and we find in God and we find in His. His kingdom, that's what we are sure and certain of in the midst of loads of stuff that isn't certain. That's where we want to put our, communi- uh, our, our faith and our security. And as we do that, we're not a little tribe that's hiding away. Daniel was engaged in the world around him. And we see here a kingdom that's, that's engaging with all peoples. So that fear isn't getting better of God's people. Just as a bit of an aside, a couple of days uh, spent this week um, being uh, taught by Ed Shaw, who's written the book The Plausibility Problem on the issue of homosexuality in the church, uh, writing from an orthodox uh, standpoint on the issue. But it's interesting, just as an aside, he, he mentioned either somebody that he knows, and I forget the detail, or someone of which he's read, saying, uh, as an evangelical Christian, I just felt it was time that I should engage a bit more with the gay community. So I did. 
um, and uh, just spent time listening. Um, and they were clear on my standpoint, but I wanted to, um, I wanted to build a bridge. So I, I, I went and sought them out. And he said, the thing that shocked me most was they outloved me. They loved me more than the church did. And um, it was a, a profound kind of realization. That's a, a powerful subculture. And it's not a desire to set it up as a, a, as a competition, but it's just recognizing, actually, we have the greatest reason of all to be drawing people in, loving people, blessing them, at the very point we perceive they're not like us. The gay community receiving that guy could have just hurled stones and because of the hurt they'd experienced perhaps uh, from other representatives of of Christianity in in years gone by could have pushed him away fearfully but actually they wanted just to show, uh, show love to him. We've got greater reason to demonstrate the same attitude of love, being, being quick to welcome, quick to love, quick to embrace those who aren't like us, not give in to a climate of fear in turbulent times. Um, so I hope that helps. It's important, I think, just to try and get hold of things that are, that are solid. Right? You can put your weight on, in Scripture. We can put our faith in God and we can play our part in his kingdom too. Amen? Let's worship God. Why don't we stand together? We'll kind of respond and worship all in the same go um, and then grab a tea or a coffee or a cold drink in just a moment. But let's, let's just bring ourselves before God in worship as well.